episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by MagCast. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Whether you're a coach, a content expert, or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if you had a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and your professional status in the eyes of your market, and you got to do it all at once? Well, a way to go from going invisible to getting a meeting with anyone is to go over to MagCast, M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot co, MagCast co, where first-time publishers create thriving magazine business. That's MagCast.co. Get over there and have a look. I want to welcome you back to this episode of Curiosity Bites. I'm here with my guest, Jeremy Ryan Slate. We've been, uh, we've been on some pretty twisted little turns here. It's pretty fabulous. Jeremy is, of course, the founder of Create uh, of Command Your Brand podcast. He's also a uh, entrepreneur with a media company. Let's just talk a little bit about your company, and then we're going to come back to some of the stuff we were on before. Because you know where this conversation has gone, as Liz said, it's taken some interesting twists and turns. We've talked about religion. We've talked about philosophy. We've talked about blue collar versus Oxford. And yet you've ended up in this world of new media. So tell us a little bit about your company. What does it do? So we are a PR firm for the podcast space. Cause I feel like there's so many companies out there that are like, quote unquote, like booking podcasts. What we really Ooh. do is we look at the media strategy and the position that someone wants to achieve. We take a look at like, well, what do you think describes your brand? And then we try to define that brand image. We do a coaching program around that. And then we really place some people on some really cool shows. Uh, you've been nice enough to take some of our guests in the past, which I've really appreciated. And we also teach content repurposing because I find that often people think that any media feature, whether it's a podcast or whatever, they think, you know, they get on the podcast, they're like, okay, cool. That's the end product. The actual end product is what you do with it and the effects you create with it. So we teach people how to use this to create content for different platforms like Facebook, like LinkedIn, like all these different places and actually use it to, you know, build their brand and grow their listenership as well as the show's listenership. And I think that's pretty cool what we get to do it with people every day. Give us an example of that for somebody who's listening right now is going, mm -hmm. I don't understand. What do you mean? Don't so, I just so go on a podcast and it's, that's it? No. So here's the thing, right? Like not every podcast is right for every person. And, mm -hmm. and, and what I mean for that is like, so we had a client in the real estate space and I looked at this guy and I'm like, just the thing that it says to me, like his, his brand says to me, badass. I'm like, okay, cool. So his, that's what his brand says to me. So he can't just go on any show because if he gets on there with, you know, Joe, the real estate broker, that's, you know, just a blue collar guy that, they're not going to fit. Like that doesn't fit with badass. So we actually looked at defining shows based on that user avatar. And then because of that, people come back and be like, wow, this guy's incredible. You know, mm -hmm. he really knows what he's doing. But one of the things we find is we have to scale people back sometimes or scale them forward, meaning mm -hmm. they tell their personal story and they teach something. Now, what I find is this is the interesting part because people teach either way too much or not enough at all. So mm -hmm. we really try to work with, you know, what are those things where people can buy, walk away with value from you, whether they buy something from you or not, and then kind of teach people where to go at the end of that. So, you know, once we get that avatar defined, we really nail that down to your story, message, and call to action. So when you say um, people teach, uh, this, it's an interesting thing for you and I. Yeah. People teach too much or teach too little. Uh, give, us a, give us a way to understand that because I, 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 I know where you're going with that and I really mm -hmm. want people to grasp it because I think you do a great job of that. 
so like the, so like I, I mean here like you pick one to three things that you're really good at and you tell everything that the host you're willing to tell them like they keep asking questions you keep answering them the thing not to do is there's a couple of interviews i haven't published myself of like people i've interviewed because every time i asked them a question they would send me to their youtube channel they would send me to an opt-in or they would send me some place so it's like there's no value to the end user so it's doing two things it's not helping the show and if you're trying to get business out of this it's also not creating trust for you because everything you're doing is about like you know my next dollar rather than adding value to the to the world out there and that's actually what creates the level of trust that actually makes somebody want to move forward with you whether it's in a business relationship or whether they're going to refer other people to you or anything like that so so that's it's it's an interesting dance but you know with the thousands of interviews we've helped people set up we've realized you know what those steps look like well talk about the other side then the people who quote teach too much oh dude they they tell you so I, I can be guilty of this myself at sometimes a little bit because I like numbers. So I will, you know, put out certain facts and figures, but where they matter, I think often we had, a, we had a client once that was in the accounting space and he would start to talk about like all these different complicated accounting formulas on a podcast. It's like, dude, they stopped listening after the first minute. So I, I find that you want to make sure people can get value out of that and feel like they can actually do what you're talking about and, you know, maybe they can after hearing that interview, but keep it to a thing where it's not confusing because you have to understand people are in a car, they're at the gym or they're doing whatever they, they, unless they're super motivated to take notes, too much information is going to like just blow their head off and they can't do anything. Yeah. So it's, it's an empowering way rather than like overpowering. Empowering rather than overpowering. That's a really good way to put it. So why do you think, why do you think podcasts have become so popular? I mean, you're on one right now, but why do you think they've become so popular? Because um, I am old enough that I remember talk radio, radio, as in you tuned the dial. Um, and then, you know, radio died. And, and now podcasts are the thing. I, when I started out podcasting 12 years ago, people didn't know what a podcast was. Mm -hmm. Now every man and his dog's a podcaster. So every woman and her cat. So, why do you think it's become so huge? Well, as Paul Harvey, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Um, I'm actually, I'm a huge, I'm a huge classic radio fan. So I always loved radio. So I do love a bit of that. And I do love the look and feel of some podcast. Okay, You've got to stop way. for a minute and tell people who Paul Harvey is because they won't know. So when I, because like most people are like, who the hell's Paul Harvey? So when I very first came to Canada the first time when I was 21, yeah. Right. And I was uh, with somebody um, with a girlfriend and a dad and we're in the car and a dad was listening to Paul Harvey. And I was like, wow. Like I was like blown away by it. So, 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 Paul, so Paul Harvey, he just passed away recently, but his son, Paul Harvey Jr. is actually still doing a very similar show. Is he really? Uh, yeah. Paul Harvey Jr. is still doing it. Um, and what he, what he would do is he would find these interesting stories. And actually, if you haven't listened to, uh, there's a podcast by Mike Rowe called The Way I Heard It, and yeah. he actually does a very similar type type show. What what he does is he tells a short story of somebody famous, but doesn't tell you their name until the end. Mm -hmm. So like he he'll, he'll, he gets to it and he goes and that and that boy ended up to be Ronald Reagan. And you're like whoa because you look at these stories through such an interesting light because you don't have your preconceived notions about that person. And you get to the end right. and you're just like that person did that. So that's Paul Harvey. <laughs> yeah, I. I I remember listening to those stories um, that he would tell. And I mean, he also had this, uh, 
he had this very interesting voice, didn't he? he had a yeah. very, I don't know where it was from. Paul like, Harvey, good day. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a um, country, like there was nothing sophisticated, although it was well-spoken, but it was very like, brought you in. Totally approachable, brought you in. It was a fabulous job. So you, do you, what do you feel like is the highlight of the work that you do now? Because I mean, you know, you're this, you're a studious guy, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, uh, you've studied all these subjects. You're interested in all these subjects. Um, so what's fascinating about the work you do now? Well, I guess let me answer your other question first. Cause I brought yeah. you on a tangent on Paul Harvey first. Sure. Um, and, and that's, I, I think, the podcasting world is growing very, very quickly. And I think the thing that's interesting is it's very user centered. And that's why like Netflix is doing well. That's like a lot of these things are doing well because the user's choosing what they want to listen to. Mm -hmm. So in what, and, and what's interesting to me about what I'm doing now is I find that we're able to take people with really big missions and really big goals and actually connect them with the right people. And, and it's been pretty incredible. Like some of the feedback we've gotten and some of the connections we've been able to make because once you realize that it's not always about the interview, it's about the connection and, and a lot of these different things that happen because you were on that interview and because you've met that person. And if you show up as somebody valuable, you have an opportunity to make a friend with a very high caliber person in your field. And that's what I think is amazing. It's kind of this mixture of media where people listen to you. They're very interested because people are finishing 80% of an interview. But at the same time, you can do high caliber networking with people that if you guys weren't having a conversation about this, like there wouldn't really be a reason for the two of you to connect. And I think that's what's really incredible. So do you, you know, obviously you, you place other people on podcasts, but you have your own podcast too. Yeah. Um, what is, is that what's most intriguing for your own podcast is, is those conversations? It really is because like for me, you know, I got to interview this guy once named Dolph Barron and I was just like, wow, you know, like it, it blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> no, I, but I've, I've gotten Hold to on a second. I got to pull the plug on that smoke machine you're running. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so here, so here's the interesting thing to me is I get to actually talk to a lot of people that like I followed as a kid, like, or I followed as a teenager and like, and learn about them and things like that. And to me, I, I got to enter, I'm a, I'm a huge racing fan. Um, I, so I got to interview this guy, Elio Castroneves, that won the Indy 500 three times. And in 2001, I'm sitting in the living room with my dad, and I'm in May of 2001, and I'm watching the very first Indy 500 he won. He won. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy's going to be somebody. He went on to win two more after that. Um, and that's something that, like, a lot of these people, I can tell my dad, like, hey, check out this interview. And he's like blown away because now he thinks his son's like this international celebrity. It's not really true, but he thinks it is. So I'm, I'm able to connect with a lot of these people that I, I've always wanted to learn from, but I've always wanted to learn, like, why do you think this way? Why do you do these things? You know, and it's really pretty incredible uh, for me. One day I have a, I'm a huge Foo Fighters fan. And the reason I started playing drums, which then led me to play bass and led me to play guitar and a lot of other things uh, is Dave Grohl, yep. um, who was the drummer in Nirvana and, 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 in the first album in Foo Fighters, he played every single instrument, but now he's the lead singer and guitarist for Foo Fighters. And uh, he's the number one person I ever wanted to interview because I'm just so interested to find out, okay, so this first album, right? There was no Taylor Hawkins. There was nobody else in the band. You wrote the drum part. You wrote the bass part. You wrote the guitar. You wrote the, the, the rhythm guitar part. 
you wrote the lead guitar part and then you put vocals on top like dude how the hell did you do that so to me it's really important it's really interesting to find out people that think big and create these big things how the heck do they do it yeah it's fascinating so have you got to him yet I have talked to his publicist about seven times. Uh, we have not agreed on anything yet. The typical answer is no. <laughs> yeah. so, so talk to us about that for a minute. Let's just go to that. Let, let's go to the no's. Mm -hmm. Because this is something we both know about. Mm -hmm. and, and it's part of this world uh, that we live in, which is confronting the no's, uh, mm -hmm. particularly when you're going after somebody you really want on your show. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're very fortunate. We haven't got to look for guests actively in many years, but there are, <clears throat> that was with my other show with this show. It's a newer show. I'm looking for guests and I'm looking for the right guests. I'm looking for guests who are interesting people like, you know, this weird Oxford power lifter, uh, <laughs> called Jeremy Ryan something. Um, so talk to us about dealing with the nose and being, resilient when you're like going after the, the, the Dave Grohl? Well, so, so here's the thing is I find oftentimes people are too attached to the outcome. Mm. And a lot of times it's because they're operating with too small of a pool of people. So for me, like when I started, it was a list of the hundred people I most admired. It hurts a lot less when somebody that's one out of a hundred says no. And I'm continuing to grow that list every day. Like we just had Michael Hyatt on the show a couple of weeks ago. Michael said no to me for four years. And then mm -hmm. finally it came time to launch a book and they're like, Hey, Jeremy, we'd love to set something up. Great. I'm game. So I, I think often people are operating under such a scarcity mindset because they're not operating from a big enough pool where if I don't interview this single person, it's all going to be over. Well, if you're focused that much on one person, you're not going to have that many podcast episodes anyway. So what does it matter? So I find that they're too attached to the outcome because they're operating from scarcity. And yes. if, you're, if you're operating with a bigger number and you're willing to consistently follow up over years, you're going to get that. And that's, it's interesting because in the last probably year and a half, I've had so many people that I originally reached out to come back to me. Uh, we have Dave Asprey come back around and I got to interview Dave not too long ago. Uh, Michael Hyatt, I mentioned, Ted Nugent. Um, you know, Elio Castroneves was two years of follow-up. So I've, I've gotten to talk to a lot of incredible people. And just because they're saying no now doesn't mean it's no in the future. I just reached out to uh, last year's national champion football coach from, from uh, Dabo Sweeney. And he, you know, I'm not doing media right now. Things are a little bit crazy in the world right now, you know, maybe in the future. So I think if you're operating from a world, a, a scarcity where that person's yes or no is going to destroy you or make you win, then that's the problem. Why did you go after Ted Nugent? Because he's a little bit wild. Um, he, he's also, um, I think that's like 6,700 shows. He's, he's actually played the most single shows of any person. And at 71 years old, so this is the thing is I find interesting about he's 71. He's 71. This, this is oh. what I find interesting about Ted. I don't agree with him everything politically because he could be yeah. a little bit too charged for me. Um, but at 71 years old, never smoked, never drank alcohol. He is as crazy on stage now as he was at 21 when he was shooting a flaming bow and arrow on stage at a target. So to me, I want to figure out how does somebody do what they do at the level that they do it and sustain it for 60 years? Mm -hmm. Like that's incredible. And that's actually a lot of what we talked about. We talked about hard work and integrity and things like that. And I, I think that is what people don't often look at an interview for. They have this preconceived notion when I look at somebody and I'm like, okay, well, this makes me curious about this person. I want to know yeah. this. And when you yeah. follow that line, man, you can learn so much. Yeah. I, I, I'm the same with the interviews. I, I, 
I, I'm always looking for what's not obvious about them. But you know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't know he was. I didn't know he was 71. And and yeah, I mean, there are, people are much more than their preconceived uh, concepts. I mean, you know, um, Alice Cooper is a great example. Like, who knew Alice Cooper was a devout Christian? Right. Alice Cooper is an incredible guy. So he's a scratch golfer, by the way. He's really he's a really good golfer. Yeah, I know. And in the 70s, he rented a house with um roger waters from pink floyd yeah and he said that he hadn't done drugs and he uh, he hadn't done drugs his whole career he said that living with pink floyd taught him they've done so much drugs over the years they forgot they did them <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like i was i was listening to some stuff around alice cooper years and years and years ago and, you know, and people sort of had him as this devil child because he was mm -hmm. so dark. But he is actually the father, uh, the son of a minister and mm -hmm. very religious and, you know, and, um, and, you know, is this horror rock and roller who was very different. And it's, it's, it's always fascinating to me that people can't separate a persona from a person. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you, you know who D? Do you know who D. Snyder is? Yeah, of course. Twisted sister. sister. So he grew up in here in in Morristown, New Jersey. He raised his kids here in Morristown, and um, his kids are the same age as, as a couple of my relatives. So they grew up together, and everybody was like, "Oh, well, they're not going to hang out with D. Snyder's kids because his kids are probably crazy." D. Snyder was a disciplinarian. He didn't let his kids drink. Didn't let his kids smoke. Didn't let them do a lot of different things. So his kids were getting in less trouble than the people who were like, oh, my, my kids can't hang out with D. Snyder. So I just think it's pretty incredible, like, how we let those things cloud our vision, man. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great lesson for all of us, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's where we started off talking, is this whole idea of who people are versus who they think they are. And, and so let's, let's loop it back a little bit, because um, perceptions and reality are different. Um, and I think that perceptions and reality are different also depending on levels of depth. So, you know, the surface of a person versus the, the surface of their persona, but the depth of who that person is is different. You know, you talked about this transformational book for you, which was Dianetics. A mm -hmm. um, lot of talk about Dianetics, a lot of talk about the Scientology world, and a lot of people you know, are familiar with uh, uh, John Travolta being part of that world, Tom Cruise being part of that world. But they probably don't know a lot of the people who are already part of that world. A really good friend of mine was part of the Hollywood Center for many years, went down there, was part of that. Um, he used to run Tony Robbins groups in Vancouver. Like, mm -hmm. and he was an Alberta guy. Um, and he said, you know, so much of it was really valuable to him. He's not with it anymore. Um, it was really interesting that a very good friend of mine, we were having a conversation, he was here in January, flew in for a mastermind I held. And I said, and he said something, and I said, oh, do you know Joff? And he's like, you know Joff? And I was like, he knew him also from Hollywood, from the same place. So it's a fascinating thing. What in there do you think is the misconceptions? Because I know like um, some of um, like Grant Cardone is part of, has been part of that world. And you were even featured in one of the commercials I saw you share. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I was interviewed for the television channel, which was pretty cool. 
Um, I, I think people, and, and this is with anything, man, people believe too much of what they read on the damn internet mm-hmm. rather than, you know, getting personal experience or, or reading things about it. So honestly, that's the biggest misconception. People are like, you know, they're looking at these different things and they think Scientologists believe in aliens. They don't. They, they think all these different things. And I think often it's just because people believe what other people say rather than their own firsthand experience. And that goes for anything, man. Cool. That, 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 that goes for so many different situations in the world. So if I, in terms of misconceptions, yeah, it's, I, 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 I think it's really interesting because I, I think when I talk to you about misconceptions, it's usually something they read online and I'm like, really? And you think that's true? Well, I'm a Scientologist. Whoa. And it blows people's minds that they, they read something on the internet and they think it's true. And it's, it's, I, I feel like at this point in time, I don't really have a good example for you because I've kind of forgotten more weird things that people have said to me that Scientologists believe. And I'm like, yeah, I don't believe that. Um, so I, I, I wish I had a great example for you. <laughs> so is your wife also a Scientologist? Is Brielle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Did, and she obviously, I mean, you said you read the book first. Did she come to it later? No, so, or? so she was, she was uh, born into Scientology. Um, oh, she was? I, okay. Yeah. So, so as I told you, dude, I was a world religion major. So I knew yeah. everything about everything. So I didn't want to know anything about Scientology. Right. Um, and it wasn't until like what I had, you know, felt, felt like was going to help me through a lot of hard times, you know, it didn't help me. And then I actually sought the advice of myself and told her I read this book. And she's like, what? You wanted nothing to do with it. So I was guilty of what I blame other people for being preconceived and not wanting to look at something because I knew everything about everything. And if, if what I know is very true, then what you know can't be true. Exactly. I, I think that's often what it is. If we have this idea that if what I believe in, and that's actually one of the greatest things I've ever learned from Scientology um, is something that uh, Mr. Hubbard has said, you know, what is true for you is true. And I think oftentimes Absolutely. we take a look at what somebody says and you say, well, if what I believe is true, what you believe it can't be true. Well, I don't have personal experience of what you've been through. So, so I, I think that's actually one of the greatest things I've learned is we all have our own reality, man. We all have our own things that are true for us based on our life experience or how we were raised or what religion we came out of. And you don't want to invalidate that in somebody else. No. And, and I think that it, it's easy to paint everything with a large brush. Mm-hmm. You know, you get these crazy people online who are, my opinion, right? I'm saying that I own it fully crazy people online who were saying things like, you know, all Muslims are potential terrorists. I'm like that's crazy to me. Hateful. Well, it's not only, yep, yeah, but it's also so limiting. Mm-hmm. Are there crazy Muslims who want to blow shit up? Obviously there are. Yeah. Obviously there are. Are there many more who don't? Yes. Are there crazy ass Christians who think everybody who doesn't believe their faith is going to hell in a handbasket and we should condemn them all. Yes. But I know many Christians who are not like that. Are all Buddhists peaceful? No. Go to Sri Lanka. The heck, they carry machine guns. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like all these perceptions yes. of a reality and perceptions of what's right or true. And it's so far from the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, I, you know, I, you know, one of the things that you and I have in common is I studied religions. I, and and I studied Buddhism and all that, and I said, and I've said the Christian faiths, and I always a very good friend of mine who is a very good Christian. I'm going to use that term um, because he says that he wants to live his life in the way of Jesus, mm-hmm. not so not as in a religion, although he goes mm-hmm. to church, but he just wants to. And he says, 
the people who piss him off are Christians because they don't live in the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we had this conversation and I said, some of the best Christians I've met are Buddhists. And he howled laughing at that. He thought it was great because it was beyond the perception. Well, I, I used to listen to, and I, I still do, I listened to a lot of Christian music uh, growing up. Um, and one of my favorite artists that I still listen to this day is a guy named uh, Toby McKeenan. And, and one of the quotes that I, I love from him is he says, and I'm going to do this from memory, so we'll see if I can remember this. Uh, one of the single greatest causes of atheism in the world right now is Christians that follow Jesus with their lips, but not with their bodies. And I think Whoa. that's what's really interesting is we say things, okay, but if you're saying something and doing something are two different things, man, and that applies to anything. You know, if you, if you are not walking the walk of what you truly are, then you're going to create a lot of, you know, non-belief in what you're doing because, because people are looking at this and they're saying, well, if you're saying this, but you're doing this, well, do I want to be interested in that? And I, that's why I think whether you're a Christian or whether you're Jewish or whether you're a Scientologist, be the best at that you can be so that other people say, because people make decisions on your faith based on your life experience. So they, and, and it's right or wrong. It, it is what it is, but be a good example of, of what you believe. But, but there's the point right there, because, you know, right behind you, we're seeing that your brand command your brand. And how do you command your brand? You walk your talk. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, whether you're selling courses on X or whether you're talking about your faith or whatever it may, it may be. If you're incongruent with your brand, which might be your faith, mm-hmm. but if you're incongruent with that, you, you teach people not to trust it. And that's really important. So it's a, it's a very interesting subject that, mm-hmm. you know, here we are talking about, you know, faith and religion. And on the other side of that is actually, well, it's a brand. Mm-hmm. And are you aligned with that brand or not? Are you integrity with that brand? I, I remember the quote now, cause I don't want to, I don't want to butcher this. Um, the the great, single greatest cause of atheism in the world uh, today is Christians who, uh, um, who, deny Jesus by their actions when they walk out the door or are they, I'm sorry. They, 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 Never mind. I, I forget what it was. We got it. We I got had it. it a second ago. Yeah. It's all right. We got it. Cause it's really <laughs> good. So, and again, let's, let's talk a bit about, um, there are a couple of subjects I want to jump into, but you know, sort of, sort of put them all together and we'll, we'll pull mm-hmm. them apart, which is sure. Torah, mm-hmm. right? the study of Torah. Um, Alexander the Great, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici, and Cesare Borgia, mm-hmm. which I know those are those are subjects you're very fascinated with, <laughs> and and, and that most people, I mean, I think most people have heard of Alexander the Great. A lot of people have never heard of uh, de' Medici, and a lot of people wouldn't know who Cesare Borgia is. You and I had conversations offline about those things. We're like, oh my God, we got to talk about this. So mm-hmm. let's 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 go into those. Well, here, here's the interesting thing, because I, I think we're looking at Alexander the Great and we're so so it's a little bit less with Lorenzo di Medici, but it's a little bit more with uh, Alexander the Great and Cesare Borgia. So Cesare Borgia is I believe it's one of he was at the time was the first cardinal to ever be let out of his uh, vows to be a cardinal. And he became um, he became, uh, you know, kind of like a military leader at that point in time. And the interesting thing about them is they started out with very altruistic ideas. 
Like mm-hmm. Alexander the Great, like he wanted to unite the known world and he thought yes. he did it with uniting Africa and Europe and, and uh, Asia. So he, he thought he had done that. And then he went over the edge and went power hungry. And, you know, he killed Clytus the Black, who was like one of his like top advisors. And, you know, it just became about conquest and blood and everything else. But he had studied philosophy as a child. He, yes. he was a very interesting guy. And then you look at, at Cesare Borgia, he wanted to be the first one to unite the kingdoms of Italy into one country of Italy, which was not realized later on until Garibaldi in the, in the late 1800s. So the thing that he did as well is he went for power rather than for what was the most important thing. And it's actually, he's one of the people that uh, Machiavelli writes about in The Prince. The Prince, the prince is he, based on, on. Yeah. On so he, he, he catches the plague and his, you know, the, the Catholic church says it's not true, but Alexander V was his father and Pope Alexander V. And, they, yeah. and Alexander V dies from the plague. Cesare Borgia catches it and he's not able to do anything for a long period of time. And because of that, um, you know, the next Pope then comes in and is able to like do a power play and kind of push Cesare out. And he makes some wrong moves because he does them for power. And, and Machiavelli talks about this in the way that he said the Cesare Borgia was excellent at planning, but the only thing he did not plan for was his own health. And when that was out, he just didn't see that happening. He didn't think that he was going to, you know, have that happen to him. And that ended up, it ended up being his downfall then because he was in a negative position mm-hmm. and he made some plays for power. So, so the point is oftentimes when these military leaders or these great leaders, you know, when they move from altruism to power and they move from what's good from others and, you know, more of a, when they move from more of a pan determined to a self determined viewpoint, it's really dangerous for everybody, including them, because that's how their own downfall happens. It's how they destroy themselves. I feel like that's a really long-winded explanation there. <laughs> but, 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 it's, but it's really about this point, isn't it? Which is, you know, the quote of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, because Cesare Borgia at the time was one of the most powerful men, men alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly Alexander the Great, we all know, was a greatly mm-hmm. powerful man. But what people don't know is these backstories. They don't know that Cesare Borgia, who, as you said, is, is uh, Machiavelli's inspiration for the prince, they don't know that he was a cardinal. They don't mm-hmm. know that he was a man of God. Mm-hmm. They don't know that that um, Alexander the Great was a philosopher more th- before anything, mm-hmm. who had this idea of uniting the world. So, you know, you're, you're, you're a thinker. Why do you think that, why would you, why do you think, what do you think happens? What do you think is the, the tipping point from so I, pan thinking to self, self-centered? I, I think it's actually, it, it's personal ethics, honestly, because, you know, you can, if you keep your personal ethics in, you can handle a great deal of power and responsibility, but, you know, you kind of, you take a little levity it's easier to take a little bit more and take a little bit more. It's, it's, it's a, it's a gradient scale, man. So like you don't, you don't become a bad person all at once you do because you gradually go a little bit further and go a little bit further and go a little bit further. And then it's a little easier and it's a little bit easier and a little bit easier. And, and I think that's what it comes down to is people that have a ton of power. If they're going to hold it and respect it, they need to be the most ethical people at that position. That's because, what I was going to say. It's the study but, of ethics, right? I mean, mm-hmm. 
if, so they're, if they're not being ethical and if they're if they're not holding themselves to a higher standard they follow that gradient scale man and it's it's kind of eventually it's all over but this is i think this is the great challenge of humanity mm -hmm. is the ethical scale is very slippery and very gradient mm -hmm. and there are always going to the more powerful you get the more likely you are to be surrounded by sycophants who will yes you mm -hmm. even if they disagree mm -hmm. and it's therefore easy to justify because one thing that human beings are best at over mm -hmm. anything else is justification oh yeah you can justify anything right there are many many germans who lived in the time of the second world war who were not nazis but mm -hmm. never rebelled against the nazis mm -hmm they made a reasonable excuse there are things going on in the world today where people make excuses and they don't seem that big because it's not really an ethics thing really i'm just taking care of my family mm -hmm. and that i think and i'd love your input on it i think that ethics takes enormous courage it does. And I, and I think the thing you have to realize is this, it may suck to look at it from this viewpoint and it's not going to be this far for every person, but ethics matters than your own body and your own physical well-being, man, because it, you know, not everybody's going to be confronted with really, really tough world changing decisions to make, to be made. But when they happen, you need to hold to your own code of ethics. And sometimes it may hurt and it may be painful and it may not be a great thing, but in the end, man, that's all you have. All you really have is your own good name and your own good code of ethics that you're holding to. And if we don't have that, we don't have anything as a society. There is no society without that. And I think that's what you have to look at is that at its most basic, what we have is the society holding in your own personal ethics and or are you, you holding in your own personal ethics to hold up society? Yeah, it is. This, this is a fantastic <laughs> um, We're gonna We're gonna take a little break and because if you want to jump in the conversation, you can go over to Facebook and just check out our Facebook group. Just look for Curiosity Bites there. You can chat with us and with other conscious leaders about this conversation and stay open-minded about it. I'm going to take a little break. We're going to be back in a moment and uh, we'll go into the last section of this show and find out a little bit more about who this bloke, this weird uh, Jeremy Ryan Slate is. Having a fantastic conversation. We'll see you in a minute.